Thank you for joining us on this journey to discover more about the English Riviera UNESCO Global Geopark, one of Earth's extraordinary places. In this series of interviews, our patron, Professor Ian Stewart, explores what it is that makes this geopark so special, from when the rocks around us were formed, to evidence of early humans, and right up to artists and writers who are being inspired by the geopark today. So welcome, welcome to the latest in the Geopark and Focus webcast where we're looking at different aspects of the English Riviera UNESCO Global Geopark. And uh, and in one of the aspects we're looking at today is, is climate change. So climate change is something we have about all the time. It's on the streets, it's in newspapers. One of the, well, it's been pushed off by, by the, the COVID uh, crisis, but, but it's sitting there and it's it's uh, an ever-present part of the contemporary scene. But today we're going to be looking at it in, from that geological perspective because the geopark has got lots of evidence of past climate change. So we're going to be tracking some of that through and then looking at the contemporary, what it means today. And with us as our guides today, our geo guides, are, are two luminaries of the local geological scene. We've got Dr. Jenny Bennett, who's chair of the Devonshire Association's geology section. And um, and a specialist in Ice Age uh, environment, the Ice Age landscapes, Ice Age uh, context, really. And then we've got Professor Malcolm Hart, who is Emeritus Professor at the University of Plymouth and is a micropaleontologist, but he's quite tall, actually. So <laughs> he's, not, he's not especially micro, but he's interested in um, fauna, in, in, in kind of paleofauna, fossil fauna, and what they tell us about climate and oceans uh, through time. So those are going to be our guides. And uh, to crack on, I thought I'd start with you, Malcolm, because we've, we've got a, a previous uh, webcast from, um, from Mike Benton and Kevin Page that have set the scene, the early climate scene for the UK and southern, southern Britain, really, in terms of the, um, the kind of Devonian period after which the, the, his na- his na- area is named. But as we go into that Devonian, we go into this very dry period, the red rocks that are so characteristic of the southwest. Do you want to pick that up? Tell us about those red rocks and then kind of what happens as we leave the red rock country and kind of climate. Well, I, I think we, when we look at the Devonian, all the red rocks, what we really have to get over is that climate change is not just a modern phenomenon. And very often people present it as if it's a new problem, which of course it isn't. And if you go back just a little bit beyond the Devonian, we're fairly certain that the atmosphere, which was generated by volcanic degassing, was probably stabilised in terms of its chemistry by that time. And the same is true for the water on the planet. And therefore, what we're doing through that interval from the Devonian onwards is looking at how the atmosphere has changed. And one of the most important things that was brought out by um, Mike Benton in particular within the Devonian was the fact that it is the animal life and the plant life which is changing the atmosphere. And that's important because until we had vegetation on the planet, which really got going okay in the Silurian, but particularly in the Devonian, until we had that vegetation, um, carbon dioxide that we talk about all the time now was building up. And in the Devonian, carbon dioxide levels were very high. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it really was perhaps not a greenhouse earth, we know a bit more now about it, but certainly it's only when the plants got going that that carbon dioxide atmosphere began to reduce. And of course it was later, and we'll come on to that, that once the ocean plankton started, that's when the carbon dioxide levels came down even further. Yeah, so tell us about that little bit of the cycle. Then. What, why is it that the ocean uh, plankton should be changing the, uh, the carbon dioxide levels? 
Well, the ocean plankton, or at least some of it, is fixing carbon dioxide. And we have to remember that probably 30% of the carbon dioxide produced today, around about 30%, is being soaked up by the oceans. And that's creating, on one hand, ocean acidification, but also it's making carbonate available within the oceans. Mm. And therefore, James Lovelock's idea of a Gaia hypothesis, while I don't believe in the complete Gaia hypothesis, a lot of it is true that animals and plants are controlling our climate. But actually, the oceanic plankton is creating more oxygen and removing more carbon dioxide than your rainforests. Is it something like every one in every three breaths or something comes from oceans? That's one of the things. I'm not sure if that's entirely true. (laughs) It's something like that, and, and we could argue the details, but it really is important to get the picture that the ocean health is as important as the tropical forest health. Mm. I'd like to bring in Jenny here in the sense of, because I mean, we, when <clears> I went through geology, I went through geology in the 1980s and um, all that Gaia stuff was heresy, complete heresy. <laughs> but then again, they hated everything else. They hated, they hated asteroid impacts. They hated plate tectonics when it came along and all that. So we are quite a conservative bunch, but we really hated Gaia. But it seems to me now that every geology course, is, course in the land is now teaching Earth system science, our branding. Yeah. And, and it I, is this yeah. interconnected. I was, I, was, I was teaching it for the Open University. So, yes. Very, so very, how do you feel yeah. about that transition? It's interesting. In some ways, both of you have gone through that. That, that yeah. change to this interconnected, where suddenly you can't just talk about the, the solid crust or the atmosphere. You have mm. to talk about all of the interconnections. I think it's fascinating. Actually, talking about plants and animals affecting the atmosphere, well, we're, we're basically animals, aren't we? And look at what we're doing. It's, it's, it's exactly the same thing. But it is very interesting. And I've, um, I've been talking to other people about the effect of weathering and vegetation and the fact that vegetation has on erosion. I mean, it's, it's, it's so interlocking, the whole thing. Um, most of my research has been on rivers, and it's key to that, whether or not you've got vegetation upstream. This is me digressing. I remember something reading that, you know, when plants first come along, that's when you get the alluvial river, the meandering river, because you fix fix the soil, essentially, in complex, which is, yeah. Yes, Martin Gibling in um, Canada has written quite a lot about that and some really keynote stuff. It's good. So as we go through, we that transformation, as we come out of the, the, the red continent period, the Pangaea, when we have all the land masses together and we get these that kind of classic kind of red rocks, as we pass through that, we go into a very different planetary environment. Uh, Malcolm, do you want to pick up the story there and tell us what, what's happening to the, to the planet at that time? Well, yes. I mean, the, the red rock incident is, is obviously very important in a sense that when we look at the water on the planet as distinct from the atmosphere, the water content of the Earth has probably stabilized for a long time now. And what we're doing is moving it around. Mm. And we move it around by changing the shape of the ocean basins. But in particular, we move it around by having ice, the cryosphere. And the balance of the hydrosphere and the cryosphere is very important. So in that red rocks period, not only were the continents all together, which created a rather peculiar plate tectonic situation, but we had a southern hemisphere glaciation and sea level fell quite a markedly amount to, I don't know, 150 meters down on normal. And therefore, the continental area that those red rocks were formed in, we talk about them as terrestrial. Well, yes, they were, because sea level, because of the amount of ice on the planet, sea level was low. Mm. And the whole of Pangaea, virtually, was a terrestrial environment. So when we look at uh, the English Riviera, what we see are continental deposits. And there was virtually no 
water between us and Scandinavia. The only water there was was inland lakes that were hypersaline lakes in the North Sea Basin. And of course, those evaporitic basins control North Sea gas and the oil fields and the gas fields of the North Sea Basin. So they're economically very important. But they're all down to the fact that the cryosphere, the volume of ice was high. That reduced sea level quite dramatically. And we end up with all these nice terrestrial deposits. And having had the benefit of working in parts of the world like the Oman, and driving around all the wadis there and you see those rocks but then you look at them and think hang on these rocks in oman they're not red and of course they aren't red because they only become red when they're buried and water groundwater that was still there actually converts the iron minerals to the iron oxides and they turned red in depth i never thought about that so that redness can happen what tens of millions of years later i mean when, when would the when do you think the redness would have occurred then? well when you dig holes in the oman you probably have to go back three four five million years mm. to actually see the red coloration forming and, and that's interesting because the red rocks are such a characteristic feature of Torbay. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult to get over to people that, you know, when those rocks were forming, they weren't red. I, mm-hmm. I've seen some wonderful <laughs> dioramas. And not only were the rocks red, but the sky was red, everything <laughs> was red. And you're thinking hang on, this, this isn't the earth that I know. That's interesting because it's such an iconic part of that landscape, that red yeah. landscape. Just yeah. But let, let's skip forward then because we're going to leave that red content behind. We're going to break up Pangaea. Tell us about that break up and then what that did as we go into that Jurassic period that then come forward. Well, when we began to move out of that and we went through the Triassic, which we can see in East Devon, uh, and you can see from Babacombe Downs, if you look across the bay, as we began to split Pangaea apart, ocean crust formation was displacing water because it was actually expanding the ocean ridges. Maybe worthwhile saying, it's what, about 200 million years at this point, yeah, with that yeah. break-up starts at least. Yes, and of course... By that time, once the continent Pangaea had begun to fragment, then the Ice Age ended, so that water melted. Mm. So coupled with the melting of the Permian Ice Age and the growth of ocean ridges, sea level rose. Mm. And gradually through time, as you move from the Triassic into the Jurassic, we can see that becoming marine. And of course, one of the biggest arguing points is, is where's the Triassic-Jurassic boundary based on ammonites and things like that. And of course, if you're in a transition from continental deposits to marine deposits, using marine fossils yeah. as a time scale becomes very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. Because it depends on where sea level is rather than time scales. But of course, when you get into the Jurassic, um, we've got to think of Southwest England not as connected to everywhere. Mm. Southwest England was an island because there was Jurassic deposits in the English Channel, there's Jurassic deposits to the east, there's Jurassic in the Bristol Channel. And it's out to the far southwest. So Cornwall and Devon was an island. Now, whether or not there were dinosaurs running around on it, because it would depend on whether they could get there or not. They're notoriously not good swimmers. This is going to feed the Cornish-Devon independence movement no end to realise that Absolutely. we actually were a self-contained island with, with marine 
conditions all around. I never, what's your, did you reckon there were dinosaurs kind of running around here? There must have been, I guess, do you think? Well, I'm sure Mike Benton would love there be dinosaurs, <laughs> but we've actually got no fossil evidence of that at all. <laughs> what we find in, in, particularly if you go to Lyme Regis, is we do find fossil wood quite frequently. And that's obviously washed off these island areas. But I'm sure the southwest was virtually an island and the granite was beginning to weather because you get kaolinite and other minerals from the granite. And so we can actually think of it as an island. Mm. But then as you go through the Jurassic time, uh, continental configuration meant that sea level actually fell again, connecting the southwest to Britain and Wales and Scotland. And then as you move into the Cretaceous, sea level rose again, because particularly in the middle of the Cretaceous, that was the fastest seafloor spreading that we've ever recorded. And the present continents all just moved apart. Sea level rose dramatically. And it's very difficult to communicate with people when they look at Dartmoor that at certain points in time, Dartmoor was under the sea. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's counterintuitive to think that the chalk cliffs of East Devon, actually, there was chalk on top of Dartmoor. Really? Uh, and I always remember taking one group out to beer and they said, well, what's the paleo temperature of the chalk sea? And I said, well, about... 26 27 degrees centigrade and, and the immediate reaction was oh that would be wonderful and warm and lovely i said yeah wonderful and warm but the downside is sea levels 200 meters up there yeah um, and the nearest shoreline to devon was southern sweden yeah i want to scale of it yeah i want to bring jenny in here because this is, as a geologist, this is one of these things, it's kind of hard to explain to people, but we have to keep these parallel worlds in our head. The, the right. world that we're looking at, even though we're still at a cliff of whatever rock it is, is taking us to this very different place. And, and <laughs> I mean, I, I guess for you, that's one of the attractions of geology itself. Well, yes, it, it's four-dimensional chess as yeah. an exercise of mental agility. <laughs> I think it's I think it's true and I've worked a lot with physical geographers and it's noticeable that um, some of them have more difficulty with ideas of deep time to call it that you know, it's you talking about the quaternary I'll be talking about thousands of years and then you're looking at the the bedrock underneath it and you're suddenly flipping and talking about millions of years yeah. but you're still dealing with the same processes and if it, and it is this thing about trying to look at the, the, the place you're, you're, you're logging or whatever and trying to interpret how it would have been and how it, how it might have got to be like that. And that, for me, is one of the really exciting things about geology. I think it's fantastic. The other thing that strikes me is that it, you kind of realise when you talk to ordinary people, and I say that very deliberately, normal people, <laughs> not, not geologists, is that they're transfixed or locked into the landscape that's around them. And so well, I, I've been in lots of them where I've been explaining something about the landscape and they're just quizzically looking at me and they would say, what do you mean? If you eroded those cliffs, how do you know something, what's behind them? You know, if you've got flat layers, you assume mm. the same layers, how do you know? You know, this, they, they, they see this kind of as an artifice, really, rather than the, the way that kind of geologists see it. So I guess so much is from that reading, reading the rocks. Picking up the same, we're in the Cretaceous. So, what, how many million years ago to help the listener? I mean, hunt, well, the chalk was so formed. The chalk was formed between about a hundred million years ago and sixty-five million years ago when we enter the Cenozoic. Um, and of course, we we don't anywhere see any evidence of this in um, the English Riviera Geopark. But of course, when we look at things like the beach at Slapton Sands, well, Sands is the wrong word because yeah. it's, <laughs> it's coarse pebbles. 
But when we look at that beach, about 80% of it is flints, chirps, mm. that have been washed up from the English Channel. There's hardly any indigenous local rocks in there. Right. And all these flints and chirps have come from the Cretaceous. So when we're looking at the geopark, what we're looking at is evidence that at one time it was below the sea, at one time it was buried in chalk. And of course, where's all the chalk gone? Um, it's been removed. Now, to geologists with the timescales we work on, we quite happily expect that things are eroding away, being transported. But it's a very difficult concept for people to to actually grasp that no evidence allows you, and I use the word allows you, to make interpretations of what was going on when you've got no evidence. Mm -hmm. But that's part of what geology does, that you look at something and you're always thinking of what's missing rather than what's actually in front of you. And that's a, that's a turnaround situation to most people. And go back to the, the chalk. The chalk is pretty critical for changing the climate. So you've got this this huge thickness of these. Well, t talk, talk us through what the, the chalk is made of and its importance for climate. Well, the chalk is, is really strange in a sense that um, when you stand on a beach looking at a chalk cliff, and as you say, you can have 1,200, 1,400 metres of the stuff. When you realise that, 90% of the chalk is made up of things that you literally um, can put hundreds, if not thousands, on a pinhead. I mean, the average particle size in the chalk is two thousandths of a millimetre. These coccolis, these marine algae, and therefore when you want to look at what the chalk's made of, um, a hand lens that we use in the field doesn't help much. A normal microscope doesn't help much. You need a scanning electron microscope mm -hmm. to see those particles. But when you think of all that fixed calcium carbonate, we think that the chalk uh, sea was formed in an atmosphere where perhaps it was eight or 12 times the present level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And the only reason you can form the chalk is that the carbonate saturation in the water was so high that it counteracted what would have been ocean acidification with that level of carbon dioxide. And so the whole of the chalk succession is, is just magnificent as a record and we can look at the evolution of groups of fossils because in most of the geological record where we look at evolution it's full of gaps and jumps and mm. it's very difficult to piece together progressive evolution but the chalk you can do it because the environment didn't change for maybe 25 30 million years mm. and therefore you see progressive evolution and of course, if you didn't do that, um, I wouldn't have been able to do the survey work for the Channel Tunnel or the Thames Barrier or anything like that, because mm -hmm. you rely on those evolutionary changes to work out the stratigraphy. Mm -hmm. But the chalk's fascinating, absolutely fascinating, because nowhere else in the geological record do we have such a continual long period of time of one uniform I know it's not uniform, it's a lot of variation, but to the average look, it seems pretty uniform. Looks uniform to me as a structural geologist, I have to say. So, uh, so, yeah. so and, and, and of course, it, yeah. it's, mari it's marine. So uh, a long period of marine deposition, you, you, yeah. you've, it is continuous, and that's absolutely brilliant. That's not the case in the Quaternary. <laughs> No, I'm, I'm going to get to, I, I'm Jenny going to get towards the Quaternary. We're rapidly getting, going downhill in terms of climate. Uh, and of course, that Cretaceous, that chalk sea was, wasn't just the UK. I mean, it was right across Europe. It's an extraordinary period and, and, and beyond. So that's a greenhouse climate, uh, Malcolm. Yeah, that's a warm, well, no ice on either pole. Top 
Now, that's the interesting debate yeah. as to whether or not there was ice somewhere on the planet, uh, maybe a small amount. And there's a, a book being published literally just earlier this year um, questioning what was controlling these changes in sea level because some people think it was groundwater. Well, personally, I don't think there's that much groundwater to have that effect. Um, the ocean basins weren't changing that much in terms of shape. And therefore, was there ice? Was there a small ice cap in the Antarctic? And certainly, when I look at some of the ocean plankton within the chalk, I can see migrations northwards or southwards and then contracting again, northwards, southwards, contracting. And it almost seems as if there is a climate signal that implies small glacial centers, probably just on West Antarctica. Because, right. we, we, because we know that the real glaciation began in the Cenozoic. I mean, it's been so dated as 32 million years ago, um, so precisely with deep sea drilling cores. But we know that the Antarctic ice sheet really began properly in the mid-Cenozoic, around about the Eocene-Oligocene boundary. And then the, the Arctic ice sheet didn't start forming till about three and a half million years ago. So it was well behind the Antarctic. So if we can step back a little bit, J Jenny, what, what is it that we had that greenhouse uh, state, if you like, in Cretaceous, and then we have this, during this, this the third phase of Earth history, the Cenozoic, we've got this global cooling, a kind of relatively steady decline in, in kind of temperatures. What, what, was, what was driving that kind of pushes, pushing us gradually till this point, 32, when we suddenly get ice picking up in the Antarctic? Well, I reckon it's, it's, it's a mixture of things. It depends on where the continents are. And if you've, got, if you've got land at the poles, that will encourage ice to form. And ice on land um, takes more water out of the oceans than ice on sea ice. Um, but the control on it is, uh, is um, thought probably to be um, solar radiation and the cycles of... Um, of, of radiation reaching various parts of the planet. Um, they were sorted out by a Serbian called Milankovic, although there was a Scot called Kroll who shouldn't I be like forgotten. Kroll. James I like Kroll. Kroll. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Yes, oh, I'd forgotten the Scottish connection. <laughs> that was a good one, yeah. <laughs> That's why I threw that in. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's uh, the... The Earth's um, route around the sun is not the same all the time, and there are three main cycles. Do you want me to go into them? No, no. <laughs> well, I was just thinking, it's, it's, but it's a gradual planetary cooling that, that happens. And we see yeah. these cycles, yeah. as you were mentioning. But the, the big Which thing just is sits on top of that. Exactly. Yeah. So, so it's kind of these yeah, set of yeah. nested rhythms. But the yeah. overall direction of travel is cooling over that, yeah. last, that kind of last period. Yeah. I feel kind of bad because I'm jumping over the most momentum, momentous event, which is 65 million years ago, the end of the dinosaurs, the, the, all the things at the end of the Cretaceous. But just very quickly, Malcolm, we don't see any evidence of, of that kind of time period, that incident in the, in the southwest, do we? No, we, we, don't have a, we don't have a boundary succession. We, we see the change in terms of uh, the paleontology between proven Cretaceous and the lower part of the Cenozoic. Mm. But I mean, we don't actually have physically any evidence um, that we can point to. The nearest location is in the Netherlands and in the North Sea Basin. Um, and there we, we see some very strange deposits which are well away from the impact event of, of Chicxulub in Mexico um, and of course the big debate is just how much did the Deccan volcanics in India have mm. compared to the impact um, now I've I've paddled up all the rivers in 
parts of Texas looking at the impact event and the tidal waves. Uh, and quite clearly, that was uh, what triggered the event. You can time things to recovery from that impact event and the tsunami. You can measure the time scale by using um, our friend Milankovitch cycles. And you can show that, that there are about six climate cycles to recovery. So we're looking in terms of life recovering from the dinosaur and ammonite extinction um, within 80,000 years. Yeah. Really a very fast uh, turnaround. So, I mean, we were, I don't want to get into it too much because it's not something we necessarily see. What is quite interesting, I think, is we would definitely have got that tsunami wave. So if you the things in Mexico impact and uh, you get yeah. evidence of it in Denmark and in the North Sea, we would definitely have flooded past us. But unfortunately, no no legacy. I'm interested in suddenly the ice. The ice we get to about 35 million years, 32 million years, we suddenly get significant ice developing them. In Antarctica, and then gradually that really is, it staggers us into a, a set of ice ages. Now, when I went through university, there were only five ice ages, and there's now hundreds of them. So, Jerry, talk us through what our, our understanding of the ice ages has been completely transformed in the last few decades. Yes, and it's been transformed um, really is why I was talking about the marine record previously. The, it's by ocean drilling and looking at. Um, relationships of um, cold, cold, sig cold signal and a warm signal in those cores. Um, and a, a picture's been built up of these sort of alternations between cold and warm periods. And it, it's, in a way, we've got a huge amount of data that's very detailed. So we know a lot about a much shorter period of time. So you, you've got much more... Um, Sorry, I'm becoming incoherent. <laughs> Much more detail about sort of shifts between cold yeah. and warm. And they're thought to have been about oh, 12 cycles in the last 80,000 years. So that's that's quite a lot. It's quite difficult, though, to um, plot these things on terrestrial deposits. Mm -hmm. uh, it's because the record isn't continuous, hence my point earlier on. But... Um, what people are trying to do is to match the terrestrial record with that marine curve. But um, quaternary scientists use all sorts of different records to try and match against the marine oxygen isotope curve. And staggeringly, a lot of them do match. There's a very good uh, set of data from China, from the Lurse Plateau, where the Lurse alternates with soil. And the Lurse is formed in cold, dry periods, and the soil forms in warm, wet periods. And the, the, the patterns and the dating matches with the marine curve pretty well. So that's the sort of backbone that we've got for the time scale. And then basically what we're trying to do is to hook things on that. So there are people who get really uptight about the fact that we're using a marine curve to try and set up a stratigraphy for terrestrial deposits. My old um, supervisor, Phil Gibbard, gets extremely uptight about this. And if you <laughs> touch blue, light blue touch paper. So I always have to remember to call marine oxygen isotope stages. Um, but what we've got in Torbay, of course, is we've got evidence of uh, changes in sea level. If you've got these shifts in climate, when it's very cold, there's more ice. So when there's more ice, there's less water in the ocean, so sea level falls. If it's, if it's very warm, there's more water in the oceans, so higher sea level, and hence the raised beaches. And we get these, so there are these oscillations in sea level which are related to changes in climate. And sea level change is interesting because it can be caused if you're looking at one particular locality, there's several things could cause it. It may be something local, you know, your land might be moving, or it could be something global where the sea is moving. And that's why it's very important to just not take one site, but to sort of look further around. And it's interesting in Devon because not only are there uh, raised beaches, those are abandoned higher up beaches in Torbay, they've also got them on the North Devon coast. So the evidence is all stacking up for the fact this is a global signal of sea level change. 
how many how many of these raised shorelines do we do we have in the southwest? How many of those those um, climate fluctuations, <laughs> those high stands, sea level high Well, that's, that's a twenty five thousand dollar question, and there have been huge arguments about it over the past. There were uh, past workers used to refer to different. There was a. Two hundred and fifty foot level. Um, okay. There was a lot of work done on trying to match things purely by altitude, which is you have to be a little bit careful about that because um, there will be changes um, as, as you go across the landscape. There are certainly um, there are at least two very clear levels of, of race beaches. Part of the difficulty, as well, of course, is that if you get a higher stand of um, sea level is going to obliterate yeah. some of the earlier evidence. Um, so we're pretty sure that we've got some more recent levels. I mean, uh, Hope's Nose is a fantastic example. We were talking about that earlier when we were chatting, where you've got a wonderful raised beach, which is some 15 metres above present sea, sea level. Um, if you look at it, it's got uh, oysters and things like that in it. And it looks just like a, a present beach, and it's about three metres thick, and perhaps a bit more than that, but it's way up. So how, yeah, how did that happen? And that's fascinated scientists and amateur naturalists for years. Um, there's another beach on the, on the, the seaward side of Thatcher, uh, Thatcher Rock, which is slightly lower than the, um, the one at Hope's Nose, but that's got a lot of shells in it. And those have been investigated over a long period of time to see whether they represent cold or warm weather environments. There were a lot of warm weather things there, which is interesting. Um, I think Matt Telfer at Plymouth is starting to do some more work on trying to date these sediments, which will be really interesting. Because we've it's always... No, no, finish, please. So we've always assumed that they were probably from the last warm period, which would be about 125,000 years ago. Yeah. But it's possible they were from the one before that. And we, no, we, I was just we, thinking how things go in and out of fashion. Yeah, so oh, absolutely. Generally, yeah. You know, those raised beaches of the southwest where lots of people are kind of studying. I remember Anthony Orme and people that way. Oh, Anthony Orme, yes. But, but, uh, and then they've gone out and, they've been, and then suddenly, and maybe the contemporary discussion around climate change and, and getting data has brought it back in but maybe i think for the listener it may be useful to think about to, to paint some kind of picture of ice age britain so as i my basic knowledge ice never came as far south as toy bay is that right yeah well tell me tell me i'm wrong I'm really happy. there's certainly evidence for coming ice coming as far as the north coast of devon and there are deposits around fremington which um, there's been there's been, there've been a huge arguments about it it was thought to possibly to have been um, an ice-dammed lake or possibly to have been just the ice up against the cliffs or stopping drainage of rivers. Um, then there was uh, another set of theories who thought that the Fremington um, clays were actually glacial. And I think most people now think that it's just a, an ice-dammed lake because there's lots of layers in it, so that would work. There is some fairly recent work on Lundy, um, mm -hmm. where workers have found what they they've been, they're interpreting as striations on the granite on Lundy, and they've also sort um, identified some glacial till, which is you know, the material from the underneath the glacier. So that's still really argued about, and there's big dispute at the moment about whether or not there was an ice cap on Dartmoor, and that's oh, Stephen, yeah. Stephen Harrison's work. From yeah. that's so, so uh, what time period are we talking about for those? Is that the last glacial maximum? The last no. time the ice was at its fullest extent? Are we talking in that period? No. Uh, well, the last, the, 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 sorry, two different things. It wasn't the last glaciation, which was the Devensian, confusingly yeah. very similar to the Devonian, but it's a Devensian with two E's. Um, not that period, but probably the one before, or the one before that, the Anglian. I'm just curious, I'm trying to think about the last glacial maximum, so 30,000 yeah. to about 18,000. Kind of yeah. If in this area, what would it have been like, and how far north would you have yeah. got had to go to to finally see the ice, you know, in front of the ice extent? So. You'd probably have had to have gone to Wales or up towards Bristol, right around there. It would have been jolly cold here. It would have been um, periglacial, so ground would have frozen during the winters. 
Um, it would have been very dry because of water being locked up in ice caps elsewhere. Um, so the, the bedrock would have been available to be, to be eroded. So there would have been a lot of um, sediment deposition going on as well. It wouldn't have been a terribly nice place to be. Um, things like the, the rivers, the, the X Valley, um, that we now think that the whole of that valley was actually a braided river because of the amount of sediment that we're finding that's been moved across. Uh, very little evidence of um, human habitation during that period. Um, just a few bits and pieces later on, probably because it wasn't very pleasant. You know, it was a large braided river that was sort of not very nice in the winters. So we've got we've got people in the area, though. We've got humans. You know. Um, so let me see. How far back are we? Well, I just think that last certainly about yeah, yeah. What, thirty thousand or so for humans. In well, it's it's really important to to link in um, the record that we see, and I, I'm used to talking about marine isotope stages. But when mm. you come to the southwest, around the headlands like Hope Snow, Berry Head, there are submarine cliff lines which right. represent. Yes eroded levels offshore yes and then in particular uh, some work that that chris proctor's done and yeah. i'm supposed to be doing because the samples are sitting in my lockdown office <laughs> in, in plymouth we in need you to do it malcolm yeah yeah there we are marine caves. analyzing yeah but there are marine caves around tall bay Right. And these marine caves are really quite important because yeah. when you look at the succession in those caves, it's an intermittent record yeah. of yeah. marine sedimentation, speleotherms, marine sedimentation, etc. And these sea level cycles you can see within those sediments. But of course, those marine caves that we see on, on Berry Head and the related areas, we then have to jump to the other caves like uh, the Buckfast Caves or Kent's Cavern or Chudley. the caves up near Chudley that actually have the terrestrial record. And so we've got cave systems in the southwest which show both a marine record and a terrestrial record. Mm. And we must be really in a few places where that happens. Yeah. So, so yeah, just to be close for the listeners to be clear. So if we're going back to that last maximum glacier, sea level is way, 100, 150 metres or so lower than... Yeah. You know, yeah. So there's a whole expanse of landscape there mm. where fluctuations in sea level would have been, as you say, creating caves, drowning caves, creating caves, and then mm. exposing them. It's, it is extraordinary that I mean, how much do we really know about that offshore realm? It must be very hard to get information. There's not not too much, Malcolm. I think you know more than I do. But there was some sonar done, wasn't there? Where um, just the most of it was round by the Solent, and you can see where the Solent River comes round the Isle of Wight and then out again. And there's a channel there, and the X and the team join up offshore. But but Malcolm, you're much more into the marine well, stuff. Well, yes, I, I know it's not the English Riviera Geopark, but if you go and stand on Plymouth Hoe and mm. watch the Brittany Ferries boat, it <laughs> follows the old channel of the River Tamar when sea level was much lower. Mm. That's why there's that rather strange oh, meandering exactly. route out of Plymouth Sound. But, I mean, it, there are places in the southwest where we do see a record uh, Around the Silly Isles, uh, around the Sillies, um, James Scours has got a lot of evidence of sea ice washing into there. If you go to the uh, Channel Islands, offshore Jersey, you can see the record, um, which is a beautiful record going from uh, almost a forest uh, vegetation uh, being drowned by sea level rise over the last 9,000 years following the last glacial maximum. Mm. And of course, these modern climate changes are, are just part of, of that story. But I mean, I know Phil Gibbard really can't stand um, <laughs> marine isotope records, but let's be honest, um, 
there's two things that have given us this wonderfully accurate timescale mm -hmm. for these sea level and climate cycles. One is uh, deep sea drilling cores where we yeah. can measure stable isotopes and we can see all the changes. We, we can see changes in ocean acidification caused mm -hmm. by fluctuations in carbon dioxide within those cores. But the other thing we can see is, of course, that those marine cores in modern environments, um, like the Caribbean or offshore Atlantic, when you go to the Antarctic or Greenland and drill ice cores, you can actually look at the gas bubbles in those ice cores and see that these climate cycles relate to carbon dioxide because you can measure the carbon dioxide. Now, when you, when you measure that carbon dioxide, the maximum level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is about 360 parts per million. Yeah. When you look at the modern day, yeah. we're up to 420. Yeah. And that is the one proof that we are now into uh, territory created by human activity. But I mean, we can actually see evidence of some of these changes in the atmosphere and sea level. Let, when let, you stand in the geopark. Yeah. Mm. Well, can, we, can, can we hold that thought? Because I'd like to bring it up to that contemporary, but very much uh, in, in just a second. Can we, if, as we come out of the Ice Age, we get a, a rapid rise in sea level. And, and what, what do we see, Jenny, in the Torbay area as a result of that rising sea level? Well, probably the most obvious thing is at Goodrington, where there's a drowned forest, um, which you mm. can see when there, if there's a particularly low tide and if there isn't too much sand on the beach, that's beautifully exposed. Um, there was some work done on that about 10, 10 years or so ago, and it's been dated to have been uh, probably eight, 9,000 years old, Mesolithic, and there's evidence of people being there then. So certainly I, I used to take students a lot to Goodrington, and they, they used to find it quite bewildering because you would see the drowned forest. You go a bit further around, and there's a wonderful um, uh, unconformity where you've got sort of You've got the Permian and, and then and the, uh, the Carboniferous sort of doing that. Yeah. So it's obviously something very odd has happened on. And it's this thing about time and, and length of time for things to happen. But to have a drowned forest and a raised beach, and there's one at Shoalstone, which is not too far from Goodrington, reasonably close to each other, is quite confusing for people trying to work out what's going on in this period. So and trying to put a, a, a peg on them to say how old some of these things are is quite useful. Well, Mark was right that the, the marine oxygen isotope curve is a really useful peg. It's a skeleton, isn't it? So you hook on what's happening when. But um, certainly that Goodrington um, drowned forest is, is the most obvious thing I can think of. We've got some spectacular raised beaches in Torbay, which will show us when sea level was higher. But uh, I think that's uh, that's probably the best one, yeah. We have this kind of rising uh, sea level that comes after the ice, and then that kind of wanes as that global meltwater kind of kind of uh, balances itself out, really. Which is why I really like to kind of bring it right up to the present day with, with climate change, because quite a lot of people use geology and use past climate as a kind of stick to beat contemporary climate uh, change with. They say, oh, the parts per million CO2 you know in the well even going back a few hundred million years isn't that high and sea level has been up and down and all the rest but what's your take on that in terms of what is the past climate tell us about the present climate jenny do you want to start us off on that i think what's interesting is as you say people often will comment that um it, temperatures 125,000 years ago were a lot warmer than they are now um, CO2 certainly been all over the place. It doesn't suit us as a species, and I think that's the uh, the key thing. Um, and certainly, the amount of uh, CO2 and other greenhouse gases that humans are putting into the atmosphere is disrupting some of the natural systems. 
we probably should be on the long, slow decline towards another cold period at the moment, but uh, that's not, not happening because of what's going on in the atmosphere. So, yeah, really interesting. But how you deal with climate change deniers is rather more tricky. Um, I think uh, there are records that uh, you can show people, the records from Hawaii of the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere is really important. And that I noticed now that's reported daily in The Guardian, which is quite interesting. Yeah. So it's important enough for that to happen. But yeah. So, Malcolm, you've alluded to this several times in the interview about you know past changes in a way, geologically dwarfing some of the ones we, we have today. You know, go back to the, the really earliest times, we get records thousands of parts per million. But, but, you know, there's no getting away from the fact that there's something different about these changes now than they have, have been in the geological past. Would you agree? Well, yes. And speaking to a ardent fellow from north of the border, um, I've got a Scottish heritage too, but I mean... <laughs> James Hutton famously said, the present is the key to the past mm. in yeah. interpreting geology. But I mean, a lot of geologists, aside from kicking occasionally the climate change people, um, do actually genuinely believe that the past is the key to the future, mm. that we actually understand the physical processes. And, you know, if you if you stand on bury head and look across Tor Bay, all those hilltops behind Torquay are at the same height. And that is the last time we had this sort of present level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere where you're into the middle Pliocene. And that is a marine surface. And buried in that marine surface is an earlier one from the middle Miocene. So just by standing on Berry Head, you can actually appreciate these changes. And I, I think the important thing for um, those trying to understand what's happening as carbon dioxide is um, getting into the atmosphere, we can measure ocean acidification absolutely precisely because um, microfossil people look at the thickness of the shells of plankton we're looking at the corrosion within um, pelagic gastropods and we can see the effects through time on the plankton and therefore it's it's bringing it into the biology um, as well. But of course, the one thing that we're really um, struggling with is that no matter how well people behave in terms of reducing carbon dioxide emissions, mm. there are two problems that we really can't address. Um, and they're almost nobody's fault. First of all, are these marine gas deposits under the ocean, which are becoming unstable because the ocean temperatures are rising. And if they release clouds of methane into the atmosphere, that will have a pretty bad effect. But I mean, the worst one is, if you look at the weather reports just last week, Siberia, Russia in Siberia has had two to three weeks of temperatures at 38 degrees centigrade. Now, what's that doing to the permafrost? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's not the Russians' fault. I mean, don't blame the Russians for that. Uh, and don't blame the Canadians for that, because it's global climate which is creating that loss of the permafrost. Can, can I... And if there ever was a thing that you can attribute to humans, it's that yeah it's all intensifying isn't it and the yeah, more more um hurricanes more typhoons it's all the same thing it's all intensifying warm seawater will do that sorry to cut across you know, i was just uh, one of the things i've often think is when we try and talk climate change and you alluded to it in the way you describe it there there's all these complexities in the system you know sometimes you get a, it means more rainfall here and less rainfall there and people mm. think 
with waves, increased storminess and things. And a lot of it's really complicated. But it always struck, struck me that it, the ocean acidification is actually quite a simple concept that geologically we've got a good handle on. And it's absolutely terrifying in the sense of being a potentially existential threat. Malcolm, do you want to take us through? I mean, the, the, the idea of those warming oceans and that lowering of the ability of organisms to build the shells from calcium carbonate, the loss, potential loss of the reef system, seems to be something that all the global foodstocks kind of rely on. And, and you kind of alluded to, again, you mentioned something of things being locked in. That, to my mind, seems locked into the system. It's, how, how do you see ocean certification? Let's finish on, on that thought. Well, there's, there's two aspects of it, if you'll forgive me. I mean, one aspect is that warmer oceans hold less oxygen, dissolved oxygen. And therefore, the increasing temperature of the oceans means that those animals that rely on oxygen are going to find it more and more difficult. Those organisms that rely the plankton, um, those um, pelagic gastropods that literally are struggling to create their calcium carbonate shells, they're a food stock for most of the world's fisheries. Now, can these organisms live without a shell? Probably. Um, would they still be a food source? Well, Yes, I imagine that's the case. But of course, we we really don't, we're in, in uncharted territory here of trying to understand the biology of organisms. And I mean, the, the UK is doing a wonderful job along with colleagues in other parts of Europe. Um, these um, traverses down the Atlantic Ocean looking at the plankton, um, that happens every two or three years. And there's now a tremendous database to show how these organisms are being affected, even in very short timescales. But of course, it, it's really interesting. And one of, the, one of the joys of Tor Bay is that we often forget that um, Tor Bay has got marine conservation zones or a marine conservation zone. And round Tor Bay, the, there's these wonderful seagrass meadows. Yeah. Now those seagrass meadows, um, what we've done is we've, we've found a seagrass meadow in the chalk. And that's an interesting thing that it pushes the evolution of seagrass back 50 million years. Um, but also it means that they seem to respond to increased carbon dioxide. So seagrass are gonna grow more and more because of the carbon dioxide. But down in Cornwall, we have these wonderful calcareous seaweeds uh, known affectionately as merle. And they are of course relying on calcium carbonate and they're dissolving. And so we've got a wonderful balancing act between seagrass meadows good thing seahorses yeah. love it and the merle which other things like which is beginning to fragment and fall apart so mm -hmm. complex ecosystems are very difficult to understand um, but certainly areas like Tor Bay are up there with um, providing information and uh, you know the geopark really doesn't just end at the coastline. I, I'm putting in a bid for the marine <laughs> environment as well. Absolutely, yeah. That's great. No, I'm all, with, all for that. But let's just, uh, just kind of final thoughts then. I mean, I'm interested in the, your kind of view of, you know, standing somewhere in that Torbay area and looking out, you know, what, what is it that resonates with you about, about Torbay? I mean, Malcolm, and then I'll go to Jenny. Malcolm, what do you... What gets you when you sit and stand and stare at that landscape? I, su I suppose the main thing for me is that if you can piece together that history um, when you look out over Tor Bay, um, and of course it tries to confuse you because the Devonian rocks around the southern part of Tor Bay 
are actually red. Not yes. because they were red, <laughs> they just got stained by the stuff on top. Mm. So, of course, it, that creates a problem. Um, I always remember talking to a, a couple who were on holiday and uh, they'd been told by the hotel that there were volcanic rocks in Torbay. And of course, that's partly true. Um, and they put their hand on a rock and said, well, it's still warm. And I'm standing there, I'm standing there looking at them thinking, well, yeah, the sun's up there and that's why they're warm. But of course, there are volcanic rocks in Torbay. And it's interesting that those reefal limestones that Kevin was talking about in the Devonian, what we can see there is the impact of volcanic ashes. Mm. And, you know, you've got beds of coral overlain by volcanic ash. Mm. which literally killed them. Yeah. And so there's all sorts of things like there's, there's that. There's narratives then. Is that, is that, you know, from that landscape, you're drawing out those sometimes quite minutiae stories of... of yeah. But it, it's piecing all that together and, and trying... If you go on a boat cruise around Torbay, you can bring an awful lot of that out yeah. to people so, if you can explain it in words that are understandable. I have a vision of the Harp, Malcolm Hart boat trips kind of thing coming up there. Uh, Jenny. I've been on one, it was excellent. <laughs> really? it was what, what you the kind of the resonance when you're looking out over the top area in terms of that viewing the past, the geological Yeah, past. Well, I think it's fascinating because there are so many places where you can see evidence of very different environments. Um, I used to take students a lot to the Goodrington area and it's fabulous there because you can see structures, you can see different rock types, you can see different climatic regimes, all sorts of things. It's just wonderful. Um, and I mean, Hope's Nose Rays Beach is just spectacular. There's, there's nothing else like it. I took a colleague from the Open University there once and I just said, there's a rather, there's quite a nice raised beach down here, you might like it. So we went down there and she stood on it and she said nothing. And I thought, oh, she doesn't like it. And she turned around and she said, Jenny, this is a spectacular raised beach. It's not a rather nice raised beach. So I think we should celebrate it. And um, just to look across to Thatcher Rock and to think, yes, there's something else there as well, and that which, which might link in with that. And we've become quite interested in the in the history of um, Torbay and the amateur naturalists there. And so many people had become intrigued by those raised beaches. I mean, Dukes Brown is a big name in past geology. Uh, there was a local guy called Hunt. Malcolm and I have chuckles about because there were some fairly interesting disputes with the um, professionals in London. He also became heavily involved in the uh, in Thatcher Rock and collected a lot of lot of shells there to get them analysed to see what sort of climate they were they were they were laid down in. And there's just there's plenty to do. There's loads more to do. So we want Malcolm to get analysing those specimens and add to the story. Great, but it's kind of never stopped uh, yeah. drawing out those questions, that curiosity. This, this yeah. kind of incredible landscape. Chris Proctor's work on the caves is really important, linking the terrestrial and the marine. Really important work. Yeah. And, and I know that you're both active in the Devonshire Association. Do you want to say a quick word about, about that? That's something that people might be yeah. interested in. It's a um, um, long standing organisation. We're over 150, isn't it, Malcolm? Over 150 years old. Malcolm edits our translation. Well, it, was eight, it was 1862 when yeah. William Pengelly founded it or helped to found it. And, and he was a I talking mean, he man. Was, he was <clears throat> a classic amateur in yeah. the sense of many other amateurs in the British Isles. And the geosciences have got a wonderful track record of amateur involvement. I yeah. mean, you know, Curry's, I'm not advertising, but Curry's PC <laughs> World. I mean, Dennis Curry was a fantastic paleontologist. Yeah. In his spare time, oh, yeah, he started Curry's thing, is it? Yeah, and the Curry oh. Fund from the GA, yeah. So, and, yeah. and I mean, it was William Pengelly who was involved with the Devonshire Association, but yeah. he also founded the Torquay Natural History Society, he helped found the Torquay Natural History Museum, and he designed 
the methodology of cave exploration, yeah. which, okay, it's been modified, but, you know, it's um, important. he should get the credit for having yeah. designed that mm -hmm. system. And he was a school teacher. He wasn't a professional geologist. And, and as a geology section, we're really proud that um, it was geologists who actually started the Devonshire Association. We think that's great. So the present day, we, we still run a section. At the moment, it's a bit tricky with the virus, but we run field trips and we have lectures several times a year. And we're a really nice mix of amateurs and professionals, which is, I think, really important. I think anybody can enjoy geology. It just makes you look at the landscape a bit differently. And I think there's a huge amount to be gained from that. And it's just so interesting. Well, I think, I think you've just sold it extremely well to me today. And if anyone is interested, <laughs> I'm sure you'd be delighted to get, if they get in touch with you. But for now, thank you, Malcolm. Thank you, Jenny, for taking us through sea level change and climate change over you know, a couple of hundred million years in there and just short of an hour. Thank you very much. <laughs> Not bad. <laughs> Thanks. <clears throat>